0: Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory.
1: Well, Kia ora koutou, welcome here to Circuit Cast, the pod embedded down below Parisian ties and belts in Myers Park in Central Auckland at the Audio Foundation, the fantastic Audio Foundation. Thanks for having us today for a critical panel today. Joining me, are artist Judy Derek, Kia the Judy. Howdy and writer Scott Hamilton. Yeah. We're looking at Canadian-based British artist Jim Noble's uh, installation slash online project. It's all sorts of things. It's called Dream Dialects, and it's been on at Tatuhi in Pakaranga and here in Auckland. It's uh, an ambitious and rather multi-layered uh, commission from Tatuhi that marks the 40th anniversary of Roger Donaldson's 1970 film Sleeping Dogs, which itself was based on C.K. Stead's novel Smith's Dream. Among other things, this exhibition remakes the ending of the film to echo the original book, which had a changed ending. CK said changed the ending. Uh, and it also presents many international editions of the movie, I guess to reflect on ideas of distribution. Before we start, maybe we should pause on Sleeping Dogs and the Smith's Dream plotline in which a man heads off by himself to a little island off Coromandel, only to get embroiled in a civil war. He's turned into a sort of reluctant revolutionary guerrilla against an overnight dictatorship in New Zealand. And amongst other things, the artist has created a cover version of the Sleeping Dogs theme song with a Cape Town youth gospel choir. Well, Scott and Judy, I wondered whether we might touch on what your respective knowledge of the history of either the book or the film Sleeping Dogs and Smith's Dream are. Judy?
2: Righto. Well, having I haven't been born in 1957... I read the book, of course, so I was very familiar with it at that time, you know, when the movie came out. Also, after, you know, reading Man Alone and discovering all that kind of, that thinking around the landscape as being this sort of isolated man and the, the landscape and that kind of history, which also goes through, I guess, our history of New Zealand painting and the great male painter, etc. So that was all part of my framework at that time. And I do remember the film being made, and I remember Nevin Rowe, who was the only woman uh, who had a a role in it, and she was a friend. It was definitely on my radar. And, of course, it launched Roger Donaldson and Sam Neill into these stellar careers. So in terms of, I guess, the history of New Zealand filmmaking, it was really important, and in terms of uh, establishing these very important key people in the industry as well.
1: And films that were... Political in terms of what could happen in New Zealand.
2: Well, then what happened in 1981, Ross Morant mm. and the Reed Squad. Yeah. And I remember that happening, and then people were saying, oh my God, you know, this, this book had this almost foretelling in it.
0: And Scott, what about for you? I discovered Sleeping Dogs and Smith's Dream in, in 1991. I was in sixth form at Roseville College in South Auckland. And we watched this film and, and then read the book. And it was very impressive. And 1991, it's probably not celebrated in the same way as 1981 or 1951 or remembered, but it was a year of political turmoil. Um, The national government had come in on a landslide, um, promising to reverse the policies of the previous Labour government, Rogernomics, and had done the opposite. And 1991 was the year when uh, Ruth Richardson unveiled her uh, mother-of-all-budgets with really steep benefit cuts. And it was also the year of the Employment Contracts Act. And so it was a year of of protests in the streets. And I didn't completely understand what was going on, but I was also in journalism class at school, and it was a good excuse to get out of school. So I used to go into town and and cover the protests, which almost turned into riots on a a couple of occasions. And so there was this political turmoil in the country. But watching sleeping dogs in that sort of atmosphere, it seemed to me very contemporary. It didn't seem, as I've heard other people describe it as as a... as an alternate reality, a film about an alternate reality. But it seemed to me like a a, a plausible picture of a direction New Zealand might develop in. And I wonder if young people today, um, uh, discovering them, would have a similar sort of lens or whether they would see it perhaps as something a bit more fantastic.
1: Yeah, although perhaps people who are close to to what happened to the Uruweras might see a kind of connection there Mm. in terms of the tensions that went on. One of the things that the artist does is look at alternate endings of this and sort of plays with the sort of process of artistic creation. C.K. Stead's original, he, he wrote two different versions of the book. He rewrote the ending. Hmm. Maybe the critics and people didn't particularly like his soft ending, where, where I think the, maybe the bloke, does he return to his estranged wife, I think, at the end originally? No, he,
0: he, he just ends up finding sanctuary in a remote place. I think he finds a, a group of people who may be part of a ah. religious order deep in the bush and, and there's a, he sort of drinks from the spring and, and is sort of renewed and so it's a, a kind of quite a hopeful ending. That was 1971, the first edition of the book, 75 he brings out the second edition and uh, it's a sort of brutal ending. Uh, he ends up in the, in the trunk of the secret policeman's car, he's dead and it's very unusual for a writer to change the ending of a successful novel. And Stead's sort of meditation on why he changed it is fascinating as well. He deals with it in a short note at the beginning of the second edition, but he also wrote a very fine essay about John Mulgan, the end of the 70s, and he reveals in that that even the first version of Smith's Dream is a rewrite of Man Alone. And Stead says, right. I was obsessed with Man Alone mm-hmm. growing up, and I could never decide whether I wanted the hero of Man Alone, Johnson, to, to live or not. and He said there's this deep hope in New Zealand society of being able to escape from the world's problems. Here we are at the bottom of the world. Um, If everything goes to pot, perhaps we can melt into the bush and escape it all. And he said that by the time he wrote the revised ending, he decided he needed to sort of stand up against that idea. He felt it was utopian, petty bourgeois.
2: I did a bit of a Google search on Jim Noble just to actually get a bit of a background on him, and it seems there was a lot of performance practice and what he does, and this felt like quite a different sort of practice in a sense, although there were allusions to performance when you went round the back and there was the high window with the, gl- the glitter ball going on and the music, so there's a sense that there was some activity. I quite like that little element.
1: A little party going on that you're yeah. invited to.
2: There was a lot of ephemera there, you know, there was a lot of ideas about looking, technologies, redundancy, old technologies, DVDs, CDs, you know, about how we look at things. I think he'd even filmed himself watching it on an aeroplane, watching the film. Yes. So it was all these modes of, of looking, and, and he'd kind of put things under perspex, so there was that sort of traditional museum display. He'd lifted visual references like the cover, which was sort of a desert, and he'd animated that. So he'd lifted a lot of stuff and turned it into other things. I was trying to link all these things together. There was a lot going on in there. There was the loops and things and he'd employed a lot of people to make yeah, stuff for him. He
1: he used it there a, was a crew list. He wasn't used a there? website called Upwork. I think something like thirty creatives from around the world were employed to do different bits mm. of graphic design and animation and had a an artist who translated some of the cover text into Arabic for a laser disc version that's there as an artifact. Their bios were part of the
0: exhibition as well. Well, John Hurrell, I think, described it as as uh, complex and multi layered, but there's a fine line between complex and multi layered and just being uh, diffuse and confused. Yeah, and or I st- just borrowing. John Hurrell decoded some of the, the imagery. There was, for instance, the carved asterisks on the floor, which John pointed out could be a, a symbol of the anus. And yeah,
1: well, John, John, I think called it a sly homoerotic fantasy, which mm. would I, w- I was knocked back. I didn't get that part at all. It's Suddenly, the disco ball and everything else was kind of making mm. a new kind of sense to me.
0: Yeah, I, I think there's sort of questions about how 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 worthwhile it is to kind of. I mean, this is a book and a film that have just been raked over at great length and discussed as a tremendous secondary literature. There's quite a lot of writing about the homoerotic aspects of not only *Smith Dream, but man alone. I mean, Kai Jensen, for instance, his very fine book, Real Men, Masculinity in New Zealand Literature, is a really in-depth study of this question. Alex Calder wrote an yes. essay about John Mulgan and the Western, exploring some of these same themes. So these things have been treated before and quite cogently. So, I wasn't sure whether the artist had read this stuff, and if he had, whether he was really saying anything new.
2: What was he bringing to it, I guess, too? And it's that dislocation, I guess, of someone who, you know, we're so imbued with the story, that landscape and everything. And it's, it's very much something that we know because we, you know, we're part of it. To someone who maybe hasn't that depth of understanding to come in and just, it's kind of like he's unpicked it. But then he's just left all the bits lying around and hasn't really made anything of it. Yeah. It's very open-ended. What I found really interesting, well, you know, there's all that ephemera. So it felt like a a museum collection where you get obsessed by collecting everything you can about something. So it had that feel about it. But what was really interesting, I was looking at all the, the posters and the advertising, and Nevin, the only one female in the whole film, was never mentioned. There'd be a photograph of her, but it was always starring the big stars, the two big male stars, but Nevin was never mentioned, and I thought that was really interesting in terms of the time again of when that film was made and when the book was written in terms of, I guess, um, the profile of feminism, etc. So I found that really interesting too, and I remember when Nevin finished that film, she was very particular about what roles she did after that film and she didn't work for quite some time and a lot of the work she was offered was kind of she said, no, I'm not going to do that film because it's not good for me to do it as a woman and she was very determined to, um, you know, um, keep an eye on what was being offered to her and a lot of the stuff she just didn't want to do.
1: Again, it just feels like an, another layer that doesn't connect to me or maybe maybe you guys can shed something around all these different modes of distribution, all these laser discs and beta tapes and the original book, memory stick here, a zine there, just this kind of collection, and some of it fictional. He's gone and actually got this stuff kind of created. Obviously, there's a complete line there where he's really interested in how films take on as artefacts these different kind of meanings through their different translation or the, or the way they're seen. You know, the, the film, I think, was called Coup d'Etat, and it's in some places, it's quite a different title to Smith's Dream. Mm.
2: All that technology stuff. I think you know maybe when you, if you're a bit younger, you find all that stuff really kooky and interesting, you know. But I guess when you've grown up with all that stuff and you've seen it change, it hasn't got that. You know, it's not as nostalgic or or interesting, you know. But, but isn't that
1: kind of its point? Isn't that his kind of its point? Is well, that this is how this generation is engaging with our history is through mm. what they can source and put together and plug together through the internet.
2: Mm. But I think just to present stuff like that's not interesting enough then what do you do with it? You know, it's kind of like, well, then what? You know, you're just Mm. lifting stuff and placing it back.
0: If uh, the film and the book did have a different resonance and a different culture, I mean, that would be fascinating to know more about. And it is fascinating how films can take on a new meaning in a different place. oh um,
1: well, he does go there. There's a music video that people can see online on YouTube where the theme song for Sleeping Dogs is sung by this
0: youth choir in Cape Town. Mm. Did you guys get a chance to look at that? I
2: th- yeah, I did. I heard it. Yeah. Uh,
0: yeah. But is that something he's commissioned or is that something that has?
1: Uh... I think he's commissioned it. Yeah, and obviously yeah. it has these kind of interesting but strangely disconnected kind of parallels with apartheid and, mm. and our experiences with
0: that over that late 70s, early 80s period. It would be great for somebody to, to research the, just how Smith's Dream had a, a, and Sleeping Dogs in particular had, had appealed to different audiences. Mm. Um, as an anthropologist who done some great work in Tonga on the way local people take over the meanings of foreign films. Rambo, for instance... Tongans, according to her, consider Rambo to be a Tongan hero, and the Rambo films are stories about the Tongans fighting the Japanese <coughs> in World War II. This is quite radical reinterpretations. Mm. The, there's an island in Tonga called Aowa, and the people there firmly believe that, that the Avatar movie is a celebration of their island because yes. um, uh, there's an Aowa tree in Avatar.
1: I
2: think what was missing for me in this project was that sense of. That sinister aspect to it i didn 't feel that mm. character of what that whole form in terms of the film and the book was about mm. that was missing
1: there 's a number of other things I just wanted to touch on too there is a lot around sort of authorship and and of course this kind of the You can see the kind of wanting to have a bit of a conversation about the Five Eyes Network and this sort of dark undercurrent. And as you go into the exhibition, there's a slideshow of logos, fictional logos, I think some kind of maybe nefarious global organisations or spy organisations. Did you guys get any of that? Again, he's... Outsourced a lot of the creation of them in a very Simon Denny like way. I was going to
2: say, this is very Simon Denny. It's Simon it?
1: Denny, but Simon Denny's coming of it with a knowledge of the New Zealand yeah, situation. That's right.
0: Based in Europe. Mm. Yeah, I noticed uh, the logo of uh, the Trotsky's Fourth International. Hadn't seen that for a while. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't sort of perceive any pattern to the different logos Uh, some of the organizations i recognized but others i didn't but Mm. some were left-wing organizations some environmental some ngos and business organizations i think Mm. again though it was a little bit elusive for me that that display it was intriguing but it was elusive
1: it's almost like the exhibition would have worked far better if it was shown in uh, just somewhere else where it didn't didn't have to you know so was talking a lot more around this kind of dislocated mm. outsourcing of creating artifacts around something that no one's really grasped. Of. Yeah.
2: And I think you know your point. You know it's so loaded. Taking lifting the text, that text and that film, it's so loaded mm. and mm. Al- already you know. And mm. then to try and um, pick and find new things with it, uh, you know, is problematic. And it, you know, and I think that show does show those problems that maybe. Uh, inherent in the material because it's so well known and so much part of here and us
1: And there's also another component which I haven't had a chance to check out I'm not sure if you have called the blush response a sci-fi media performance for metropolitan towers and skyscrapers you get a mobile phone app I don't know if you're into downloading mobile phone apps no, guys I'm not too um, good at that go i go to the top of the sky tower at sunset read about it yeah. go to the top of the sky tower at sunset and play it through you i to get headphones. an
2: app and go somewhere as
1: well <laughs> <laughs> You haven't had a chance to try no, that one out, no, Scott. No,
0: I should. My son would love to go up there. So
1: there you go. There's an opportunity. There so thing. I think you can still download that app and um, go up to the top of the Sky Tower and check out the sunset. Okay. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Judy. Thanks for joining and uh, joining us on Circuit Cast. Brought to you with the help of Crab New Zealand.
0: Thank you for being with us. That's ora. Cheers.
1: Cheers.
0: Circuit Cast is brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand, with music by Heat Pump follow circuit cast on itunes for more information see circuit.org.mz